recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, Christagenia.org. And this is Christagenia on Talk Show. Today is Friday, October 26, 2012. Evidently, we are, we're only, um, according to some people, even in Israel identity, or who claim to be Christian identity anyway, we only have about two months left before the end of the world. I'll be waiting for that time and reminding those people of their foolery when that happens, or, or when it doesn't happen, I should say. Praise Yahweh and thank you for listening. Tonight I have Clifton Emmerheiser here with me. We're going to just take a break from my, from, from my ongoing presentation of the Gospel of Luke to discuss Clifton's paper, The Statue of Liberty and Edomite Trojan Horse. And um, this is part of a, it's actually part of a collection of papers that Clifton has written over the years that discuss the Jewish, um, the, the, the Jewish hand behind the forcing of diversity and multiculturalism on America, which actually began, well, over 100 years ago. It, it's fairly clear. And, and um that there is much documentation, a lot of it which Clifton points out, that can be demonstrated to prove that it's been over 100 years since the Jewish agenda of multiculturalism and diversity has been um, begun to be forced down the throats of, of, of mainstream America, of, of once Christian mainstream America. Hello, Clifton. How are you this evening? Oh, real good. Um... I think what inspired me to, to write this, I, I was uh, mentally I was beginning to uh, see more and more how there was a contrast to what was written on the plaque at the base of the Statue of Liberty and and what's in the preamble of the, of the uh, Constitution, and uh, I, I really believe that the um, uh, the Statue of Liberty is a stumbling block for us. The, the, the Jews have actually placed a stumbling block on, and our our people are still stumbling over that today, because the present day politicians, uh, they're still saying, "Well, we're a nation of immigrants, and uh, you know, uh, we got to let every, everybody come in the country that uh, we can," and, and you know. Uh, uh, I don't see it that way. I, I, that isn't what the preamble says, and and uh, so that that's kind of what inspired me to write this. Well, well, right. It's not it's not exactly what the preamble says, and and there were even um there were opposing voices, even as the Statue of, of, of Liberty as soon as the Statue of Liberty was erected, that there were opposing voices to to the I some of the ideas that were being purported to have been behind it. And I'll, I'll cite at least one of those opposing voices later in this program. Um, I, I, don't, you, you, I don't know if you would like to present your entire program, your, your entire paper here, um, the Statue of Liberty and Eat of My Trojan Horse, and, and we'll discuss some of the ideas behind it as you present it, or, or how you would like to go about this, is it's up to you. Yeah, I would, I would like to if possibly present the whole thing uh, this evening. Um, I, I would say before we get started, be, you know, before we get through with it, 
we're going to see that uh, uh, the Jews that were entering the country, they had to find jobs and they had to find occupations and and settle in the country. And one of one, uh, you know, you don't generally tell the plot of the story uh, beforehand, but I'm going to this time. Um, uh, they started what uh, uh, one of the things they started, you know, among the other occupations, they started the back to the land uh, uh, movement. Well, if you, if you really follow the Jews back, uh, they hadn't been on the land since Cain was farming. Right. And, um, uh, but anyway, I, I run across, while I was uh, researching for this topic, I run across the this back to the land movement and uh, th- there was a guy by the name of De Hirsch in Constantinople, a Jew over there, and he he devoted millions of dollars to help these Jews uh, uh, be- to become farmers in the United States. And within four years, it, it, it was a total flop. It completely failed. They were lucky to even get their seed back that they planted. And then a little bit later, they tried it again in Canada, and it was a total flop there. So, uh, and and they they blame it on to a whole bunch of things like uh, bad weather and drought and hail and frost and different things. But I I blame it on the, the fact that there's a sense of canes and there's a curse on them. Well, you know, I I thought I might um, like to say that uh, you know before uh, getting started with this. Well, well, that makes all the sense of the world to me. I, I mean, it should make all the sense of the world to any and any um, any identity Christian who understands the curse of Cain and and the fact that for uh, over most periods of history, um, the the greater preponderance of Jews have not been farmers. That that that's that they've been everything but. Well, it, uh, it's uh, it's another item that proves two sea lines. And and, um, uh, and and that you know a lot of your church people they'll say well all of Kansas was destroyed in the flood and uh, well well Genesis chapter fifteen it is contrary to that yeah I know it is <laughs> but uh, did you want me to get started on this now and then well well yes go and be my guest okay. <clears throat> The Statue of Liberty and Edomite Trojan Horse. Quote, um, Homer relates that Troy reached its greatest splendor in the reign of King Hiram. That's Priam, I'm sorry. Uh, did you go say something here? Oh, that's King Priam. Uh, well, you pronounce it, you know, Priam, okay. Its uh, destruction was caused by Paris a son of Priam, uh, who abducted Helen and the wife of Manelis. How's that? It's how did you pronounce it? Menelaus. Menelaus. Okay, I was wondering how that's pronounced. King of Sparta and carried her off to the Trojan capital. The Greeks spent 10 years in collecting an army to avenge the outrage and under the leadership of 
Agamemnon. Agamemnon, I'm sorry. Agamemnon. Uh, <laughs> I'm really murdering. Uh, I don't do much sometimes. Who, who had uh, 1,180 good ships and uh, uh, 100,000 men. And, you know, I kind of wondered how many uh, men per ship that would be. Uh, men drove the Trojans within the walls of Troy. Uh, it is related that the Greeks were unable to capture the city by direct assault. Uh, hence, they constructed a huge wooden horse uh, which, within which they concealed a band of the bravest Greek heroes. Unquote. World Scope Encyclopedia, Volume 10. Uh, to make a long story short, the Trojans lost the war to the Greeks. Uh, like the uh, huge wooden horse of the Greeks, the Statue of Liberty planted on Bedlow Island in New York Harbor is serving a similar purpose, and there are few who comprehend the significance. To hit the old running, I will quote from Who's Who in Jewish History by Joan Conway, uh, a Jewish name there. Page. How do you pronounce that? Uh, I would pronounce that Kome, C-O-M-E. Yeah, Kome. I guess that would be right. Uh, but I like to, to deliberately mispronounce Jewish names, though. <laughs> Page 128. Well, I don't think Agamemnon was a Jew, though. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <clears throat> Well, I practiced that for about a half hour to get that name right, and I still didn't have it right. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Uh, quote, Lazarus, comma, Emma, 1849 to 1887. And I guess figures out she must have died about 30 year, 38 years old. Right. She was young, but she wasn't young enough. Yeah, right. Uh, U.S. Poetess. Uh, Emma Lazarus is remembered principally as the author of the sonnet, uh, quote, the New Colossus, unquote, which is engraved upon the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor. The poem expresses her vision of America as a sanctuary for the, quote, huddle masses, unquote, of Europe and victims of religious and economic persecution. Quote, the, the daughter of the New York, uh, rather, let's start over again. Quote, the daughter of a New York security family, she began writing poems and novels in her teens. Ralph Waldo Emerson took an interest in her work, and she developed a correspondence with Henry Longfellow that was to continue over the years. The programs in Russia in 1881 and 1882 gave her a passionate interest in Jewish problems. She learned Hebrew and translated Judah, uh, and, and I, you know, I can't just pronounce the word, H-A-L-E-V-A. Judah HaLevi, that would be Judas, Judah the Levite in Hebrew, right? You oh, right. pretending to be a Levite, right? Judah Ha Levi. That's the article in, in Hebrew and, and the word Levi. 
Well, I was wondering what it meant there. I, I, I thought maybe it might be first. I thought maybe it might be the Yiddish, you know. Yeah, it's basically a transliteration of Judah the Levite in, into English. And other than the Spanish, too, right? Yeah, uh, I'll go back up here and uh, start that last sentence. The programs in Russia in 1881-1882 gave her a passionate interest in Jewish problems. She learned Hebrew and translated Judah, Halevi, and other medieval Spanish uh, Jewish poets. Her volumes of poetry, such as Songs of the Semite, uh, 1882, and uh, by the waters of Babylon, 1887. So she must have died the year she wrote that. <laughs> uh, are filled with uh, prophetic Zionist sentiment. Well, I don't see any prophecy for the Jews in the waters of Babylon because they weren't there. Uh, and and she urged her views uh, in essays and appeared in contemporary. American periodicals. It is ironical that at the request of her assimilated family, works with a Jewish uh, content were omitted from a collection uh, edition published two years after her death. I have to adjust my screen here just a little bit. Okay. To understand the lingo among the immigrant Jews during the late 1800s, one must grasp that the Sephardim Jews were erroneously dubbed German Jews, while the Ashkenazi Jews were erroneously dubbed Russian Jews. And let me say something about this statement, her assimilated family, right? Emma Lazarus was actually the child, and she was one of several, like five daughters and a son, I believe, children of a man who was actually a very rich Jewish merchant who made his money on refining sugarcane. And and they lived in Manhattan. So where it says at the request of her assimilated family here in this quote, from this book, um, this looks like it came from Our Crowd. Well, well, it's basically they're saying that Emma Lazarus's family was assimilated into um, mainstream American society in New York, right? That, that's what it's trying to say. It's not that she had a different family other than her birth family or anything like that. She, she was um, actually born of a very wealthy family, which was part of the... Um, early New York elite, right? The, the scum that rise to the top. Yeah, this didn't come out of our crowd. It was a who's who in, Jew, in jewelry uh, okay. type book. Um, to show that the Statue of Liberty was basically bought and paid for with Jewish lucre is evident in the book Our Crowd, crowd uh, pages 127 and 128. Uh, quote, in the Gatsby New York of 1876, uh, the hand torch of the Statue of Liberty, the gift from France, 
sprouted surrealistically from a street corner at Fifth Avenue and uh, 26th Street. Part of the campaign to raise money to get the rest of the statues assembled and on the and on an island in the harbor were at where it uh, would welcome immigrants to the New World, France had contributed contributed uh, $450,000 towards the erection of the statue, but expected the United States to contribute an additional $350,000 for the construction of the pedestal. For several years, while Americans bickered over uh, who should pay for this bill, the rest of uh, Burfold's 225-ton uh, lady reposed in a warehouse. Emma Lazarus had written her lines, quote, give me your poor, uh, give me your uh, tired and your poor, unquote, uh, to be inscribed upon the base of the controversial gift. Miss Lazarus' uh, lines had a majestic ring, but, or so it seemed at the time, they also conveyed a somewhat condescending tone. Sigelmans, Laymans, and Goldmans may have arrived tired and poor, but did not enjoy being called, quote, the, reg- the wretched refuse of some seeming uh, Euro- European sh- uh, shore. Many German Jews uh, in the of course, that's yeah. Uh, that's the Sephardic uh, uh, Jews uh, in the 1870s, perhaps over quick to uh, sense a slight where none was intended. Interpreted Mrs. Uh, Miss, Miss Lazarus' words as a snide comment on their own humble immigrant beginnings. Um, uh, subscribing funds uh, for the uh, statue's erection on Bedloe's Island became largely a subverted project eschewed by Germans. Such forces served to draw the Germans even closer to one another uh, into their own Hebrew select and their own exclusive uh, standards. And, and by Germans here, of course, he means German Jews. Yeah, right. He doesn't mean real Germans. He, he means... Uh, that's what I wanted to get across right. uh, a little bit before. You separate that word German. It, it, it's a uh, geographic term in this case. Yes, it is in, in this case. But, but even that's not really... Um, it's not really accurate in, in the long run because most of them had fled Spain and, and made their way into Germany to, to a great extent during the um, the Inquisition. Yeah, you know, just call them the one during you, which, uh, which uh, that's another prophecy that uh, the Bible, you know, uh, a vagabond and a wanderer. Well, and well, maybe, maybe we could split that up too. Uh, maybe the Ashkenazis could be wandering Jews and the Sephardim can be vagabond Jews. I, I don't know. It, it's um, 
It's a lot of people would claim that the Ashkenazis have little to no Jewish blood. I would say that the Ashkenazis do indeed have a great deal of Edomite blood in, flowing through their veins. The Ashkenazis have a lot of hip play down. I, I'm certain. And, and, and of course, the, the, uh, the Sephardim also have the hip play in them through Esau. So, uh, I, I, think, I think that's the, the one common blood there. You know, the, the, of course, uh, they all got the blood of Cain. And uh, anyway, I'll get back to this. The fact that the Russian Jews become offended at Emelazar's lines, quote, give me your tired and your poor, etc., is case evidence that the whole project of the Statue of Liberty was a Jewish contrivance from the beginning. It is obvious that it was nothing more than a Jewish slide of hand trick to get the white American's mind off of the preamble of the U.S. Constitution, where it is expressly states, quote, to ourselves and our posterity, unquote, and substitute, uh, quote, you're tired, unquote, you're, I've got a, uh, quote, your huddled masses, unquote, quote, your wretched refuse, unquote, quote, uh, homeless, campus tossed, unquote, in its place. Then to connect these uh, spurious terms to the U.S. Constitution, the statue's right arm holds a great torch raised high in the air, while the left arm uh, grasps a tablet bearing the date of the Declaration of Independence. What an outrage of blasphemy. This was nothing more than an attempt by the cursed descendants of Cain, and I've got to adjust my screen here a little bit, to rewrite the intent of the U.S. Constitution. If that isn't enough of an insult, the original name of the Statue of Liberty was Liberty Enlightening the World, or as Scripture proclaims, 2 Corinthians 11:14, quote, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light, unquote. It's tantamount to saying, quote, up with Satan and down with your Christian forefathers, former government, unquote. What is even more provoking is the fact that the right arm uh, is the strong arm, but the Statue of Liberty places the Declaration of Independence in the weak left arm. Only traitors would do such a damnable thing. In effect, it places the Declaration of Independence subsidiary, subsidiary to, the, to Satan's false life. However, let's discuss some of these things. Let, let's discuss some of these things in, in brief okay. but before we continue with your paper, right? The, the, um, in, in the mainstream accounts, the driving force, and, and I'm talking from a mainstream perspective here because I, 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 I do believe that there were other powers behind the scenes. The driving force behind the Statue of Liberty was a man named Edouard René de Laboulaye. 
And De La Boule was actually a um, – well, well, first he was involved in – he was a, a professor of law in, in France in 1849. He was involved in the Paris Commune of 1870. He, he, was, he, he was neck deep in, in, into the ideals of the French Revolution. He was an abolitionist. He, he was an active abolitionist. He agitated for, for the abolishment of slavery – even here in, in, in the United States in, in the years leading up to the American Civil War. Now, he was supposedly a friend of Frederick Auguste Bartholdi, who actually um, designed and, and, and fabricated or, or is responsible for the design and, and the plans to fabricate the Statue of Liberty. What I have here is a... Um, <clears throat> It's a page from MasonicWorld.com, which is actually, and, and it's just one example of this, of, of this knowledge that I happen to be using for a citation. It, it's pretty well known, and, and you really don't have to go too deep into conspiracy books to, to understand that masonry in France was behind the Statue of Liberty. The, the um, MasonicWorld.com, there's an article called Masonry and the Statue of Liberty, that basically boasts about the, the influence of masonry and, and how the masons were behind the creation and placement of the Statue of Liberty. And, and basically the statue was meant to, um, to project the values of the French Revolution onto American society with the, with the claim that it had actually... Um, that, that it had actually reflected the values of the American Revolution, and it didn't. It reflected the values of the French Revolution. That, that's very, it, it's, it's very clear to anybody who gives it a, even a cursory examination. And, and the American Revolution, the values of the American Revolution and the values of the, the, the French Revolution, e even though some of the um, founding fathers were caught up in in in, in liberalism as it as, as it gave, lent its cause to the French Revolution, the, the values of the two revolutions and the results were both intended to be quite different, that they weren't intended to be um, the same at all. The French Revolution was an, the, 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 the people behind the French Revolution were basically antichrists, and the people behind the American Revolution were to the greatest extent Christians, and, and that's, and, and Kenneth Lent and Mark Downey just did an excellent program on Christogenia demonstrating that, but that's a, a, a story all to itself. I just wanted to interject that the, the Masons do boast about, in, in their own writings, they boast about the hands they had in the creation of the Statue of Liberty. And the, the meaning was to project the values of the French Revolution into America and and the American Revolution was a Christian revolution, and, and Christians are we, – we don't have freedom outside of Christ, what, where the, the freedom of the French Revolution and, and the equality and the, liber, the liberty and the fraternity are, are basically Jewish ideals which are multiracial, what, which, um, what, which lead to the destruction of Christian society – and that's not what American liberty was all about. American liberty was about 
economic liberty and, and liberty from the constraints of class and American American equality was only about equality in the eyes of the law, that the respective persons would not be applied to judgment before the law, which is a Christian equality. Christians aren't equal in the sense of the, of the French Revolution. We're not all equal. We all have different gifts from God. We, the, the equality ideal of the French Revolution is basically a, um, it, it's an illusion. It doesn't exist in reality. The, the idea of brotherhood to a Christian should only be brotherhood within one's, one's race, within one's tribe. The idea and, and within one's Christian beliefs after the brotherhood of race. The, the idea of um, freedom to a Christian, I, I mean, two Peter says, proclaiming for themselves liberty, that they become slaves of corruption. And, and, and Christian freedom is only freedom in Christ. We have no freedom outside of Christ. So, so the ideals of, of the French Revolution are contrary to everything Christian, and they're contrary to the ideals and, and those ideas as they were espoused by the founders of this nation. It, it, it's, um, it, it can be wholly demonstrated that it's true. There's a, um, there are different versions of the Emma Lazarus of, of the story of how the new Colossus actually got placed in the base of the Statue of Liberty. And, and the base of the Statue of Liberty was actually, according to the mainstream accounts, the money for the base was not raised until finally, as your paper demonstrates, you know, as your paper outlines what, where, where the statue had to sit in the warehouse because there was nowhere to put it yet. But, but Joseph Pulitzer, another Jew, a, a Jewish um, media magnate of the time, he actually raised the money, allegedly, for the base of the statue. So, so we see that, that the, um, the Jewish hand behind that, the, um, the statue had been completed and sat in the warehouse for some years until that was done. The Emma Lazarus poem, according to the mainstream sources, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm not certain, I wasn't there, I'm not a student of this period, but according to the mainstream sources, this poem wasn't placed in the statue until Emerus Lazarus was dead, the, the last five lines of the poem. And it was finally, um, the, the plaque was, was financed by a woman who was supposedly a Dutch woman named Georgiana Scheigler, or, or Scheigler. It, it's um, her, her religious background, her racial background, whether or not she was actually Dutch or not, is unknown to me, but, but it's claimed that she was Dutch. Georgina Scheiler, I'm sorry, and, and she supposedly, some accounts say that she was a friend of Emma Lazarus's, some accounts... Um, claimed that she found the, the, the poem in a bookstore. I don't know how she would have had to find the poem in a bookstore if she was a friend of Emma Lazarus's. So that story, it doesn't add up. It's that there seem to be problems with it and conflicting accounts. But, but supposedly she financed the plaque and it was placed in the statue some years after Emma Lazarus's death. In, in um, 1903, it was placed there. 
but but it it's, it doesn't detract from the fact that that Masons and Jews were behind the the creation of the statue, the creation of the ideals that that the statue represented. I have something interesting from um from from zdare.com I I found this article what which is immigration myths the statue of immigration or liberty inviting the world this was written by James Fulford on May 23rd 2001 and, and he explains that the um the new colossus poem with part of which ended up on that plaque on the statue of liberty however you want to imagine that it got there it's the jews were clearly behind it it was the jews who were projecting their values onto the, the statue of liberty and its meaning there's no doubt that, that that's true but this james fulford illustrates the fact that there is actually opposing voices to the Statue of Liberty at the time, and, and, and that the Statue of Liberty was even not the, it, it was trumpeted as something other than what it was originally intended to be. That Now, I understand, Clifton, that, that only Jesus Christ enlightens the world. Only Yahweh our God and Yahshua his Christ enlighten the Christian world. There's no doubt. And the idea of this statue and, and this idea of liberty, especially the French Revolution idea of liberty, enlightening the world, is basically a satanic idea. It's not Christians only have their liberty in Christ, period. Well, there isn't an opposing voice, and, and at least one, and there were actually many, but one is Thomas Bailey Aldrich, and he wrote a poem called Unguarded Gates, and in part, it, it actually complains about the menace of alien accents. And um, he goes on to say that there were voices that the, once the Tower of Babel knew, he understood that, that the unfettered immigration, which was going on, um, and, and which was that the Jews had used this statue to represent the idea of that this unfettered immigration was actually destructive and evil, and and, and it was a danger to the to the nation. And he asks in his poem, he says, "Oh, Liberty, White Goddess, is it well to leave the gates unguarded?" And the argument was that. Um, the Statue of Liberty was not planned as a mother of exiles. It wasn't planned to invite the world, even its original intent, even though we don't agree with its original intent, the idea of liberty enlightening the world is not the same as what the Jews twisted it into. The Jews twisted it into liberty inviting the world. And, and that is not even the original intent of the statue. So, so the Jews had actually used the Emma Lazarus poem to pervert even the original intent of the Statue of Liberty. And, and that's what turned it into a Trojan horse, right? I mean, it, it wasn't meant to invite the, the, the poor, wretched, huddled masses, as, as you've already illustrated. Well, what you presented here shows it's even more evil than I thought it was. Well, absolutely. And uh, as far as masonry is concerned, 
at one time, all masonry was, the operative masonry was um, kind of like our labor unions today. And, and, and it was, um, uh, it, but then the Jews uh, started to infiltrate that. And of course, you know, I think it was 1910, something like that, uh, uh, the NAAC, start, uh, NAAC started, and, and then the same year, uh, the ADL started. And, and the ADL, you know, Benai Brith is a Mason Lodge. And I, I think there's a lot of people don't don't realize that the ADL is a Mason Lodge. Yeah, yes, Benai Brith, the ADL is actually a, um, it's basically the public relations arm of Benai Brith, right? And Benai Brith is a Masonic organization. It's an exclusively Jewish Masonic organization. And the Masonic lodges of of, of France, the the, the um. The, the Jews have been have long infiltrated the Masonic lodges of France and, and have been behind all of the all of the revolutions of the 19th century have been perpetrated through the Masonic lodges and instigated by the Jews. Well, did I start start over again here? I'll I'll read the last sentence that I was on. Only traitors would do such a damnable thing. In effect. It places the Declaration of Independence subsidiary subsidiary to Satan's false light. Well, I think uh, you reinforced that. However, this is not the end of the story uh, concerning Emma Lazarus and her infamous activities. I will now quote from A Century of Jewish Life by Ismar Elbogen. It's E-L-B-O-G-E-N. Uh, pages um, 332 and 333, and I'll explain something about this book. Uh, when I bought the uh, uh, the set of books that I have, uh, uh, it's the biggest history of the Jews you can get. Uh, Greitz's, uh, Heinrich Greitz's History of the Jews. Uh, someone wrote, uh, he must have died uh, about a hundred years, be, uh, be, and somebody felt that they had to fill in another a uh, hundred years, so they called it a century of Jewish life, and and uh, it more or less picks up where Greitz left off and comes up to maybe 1950 or so. So uh, I don't think you had uh, you got that book with your copy of Heinrich Greitz. Uh, I think you just got Heinrich Greist, didn't you? I believe I only have this. You're right. I only have the original six volumes. Well, this quote is from this uh, extra book that this El Bogan, or uh, it sounds like a Jewish name, uh, wrote. Anyway, I'll start in here. Quote, Schick's interest in Jewish matters began early, and he was always dis- uh, distinguished by a reverential regard for uh, for he showed I am stumbling here quote Schiff's interest in Jewish matters began early and he was always distinguished by the reverential uh, regard he showed to Jewish scholarships and 
Jewish scholars. During the 40 years of his active career, there was scarcely a worthy question mark uh, Jewish movement in the United States in which he uh, was not at not to be found at the forefront. He was a recognized leader of American Jewry during the critical period in which Jewry attained world importance. Well, well, yeah, yeah, right. But but he wasn't a self-made leader. He he was um he was an early employee of Kuhn Loeb and Company, and he was a Rothschild agent. That that's how Jewry attained world importance. Yeah, right. That uh, they bought it and and that they bought it and and they used the money they were making in the banking in in their central banking system in England to corrupt the rest of the world. That's what they did. Well, how many friends can you buy with money? So, a quote, I'm continuing with that same quote. There, quote: When the overwhelming stream of immigrants made necessary the erection of temporary bar- barracks to shelter them, it was Jacob Schiff who financed the undertaking. The plight of, of her fellow Jews uh, turned the gifted poetess and the Lazarus, 1849 to 1887, into an enthusiastic Jewess who uh, called the Jews to a realization of their own dignity and worth. Boy, uh, what a lie that is. It was on her numerous visits to the barracks which Schiff had built that she realized the need for giving their uh, giving their inmates work in order to guard them from the crippling uh, uh, consequences of idleness. In the columns of the American Hebrew, which quickly grew to be an outstanding Jewish periodical, uh, she kindled the ardor of the um, larger community for the task of training the refugees and more especially their children in, in the technical arts and in the trades. Due to her efforts, uh, the Hebrew Technical Institute was established in New York and similar schools were set up in Boston, Philadelphia, and Chicago. It was no light task to make such great uh, masses employable, but the situation was much more favorable than in England, for America was hungry for workers. The first uh, newcomers were far from uh, accumulating riches, but they did find a livelihood. None of them became a public charge. Those who were needy were helped by the United Hebrew um, Charities, which uh, came into being after the desolation of just my screen here. The dissolution of the immigrant societies. Yeah, yeah, I immigrant societies. The newcomers lived in overcrowded and unhealthy dwellings 
in the most wretched fashion. Whenever they could do so, they would actually deny themselves of food in order to be able to bring their relatives from abroad. Nevertheless, as was shown by an inquiry, the state of their health was not bad. Their children flourished and uh, developed properly, unquote. To validate this account further, I will quote from the story of the Jews by Rabbi Lee J. Levenger and his wife, Anna Eldridge Levenger, in 1928 and later edited by Green, Bale, and Long, pages um, 161 and 162. Uh, the title is, uh, quote, the first the subtitle, I should say, the subtitle is, quote, The First Jews in America. Quote, in the first century after the discovery, hundreds of Jews and Moranos came to the New World. Some uh, came seeking the gold of El Dorado, while others, uh, most came seeking freedom. But they did not find it immediately. The ships that uh, planted the Spanish flag from Florida to Peru also carried the cross of the Inquisition. 36 years after the first European stepped foot in the New World, a Jew was burned at the stake in Mexico. The persecutions reached their peak in 1639 when 63 Moranos were condemned in Peru in one mass trial. Quote, when the Dutch took Brazil, uh, Jews built a uh, substantial, uh, Jews built substantial colonies at Ratcliffe and Suriname, but the respite was short. The Portuguese took back Brazil in 1654, and the Jews scattered northward uh, through the West Indies. The history of the Jews of the United States begins with that scattering. Uh, 24 refugees from the Portuguese Inquisition limped into the harbor of New Amsterdam uh, aboard the tiny brig St. Charles. A brig is a three-masted ship. Quote, Peter Stuyvesant, a governor of New Amsterdam, was not pleased to see the Jews, some of whom were penniless. Uh, he tried to bar them, but the colony belonged to the Dutch West India Company, whose Jewish stockholders made him accept the Jews. The refugees were admitted with one restriction, quote, providing that they shall not become a charge to the community, unquote. The Jews gladly accepted this condition. It was to have a profound effect upon the development of the American Jewish community. The Jewish colony in North America grew slowly, uh, mostly from Sephardic Jews who came by way of England. By the time of the revolution, they numbered about 2,500 traders, uh, merchants, and ship owners. 
They were scattered up and down the coast, centering on five congregations, Newport, New York, Philadelphia, Charleston, and Savannah. They lived in uh, peace and security uh, with their neighbors, uh, but they did not, uh, and I got adjust my screen here again, they did not have full civil rights. Yet, even as second-class citizens, the Jews of America truly lived in a golden land, unquote. The following, uh, you have something to say, Bill? No, sir. Uh, the following is what I covered in my Watchman Teaching Letter uh, 39. This is not the only erroneous information Ted R. Wyland advances. Wyland has uh, very little to say about the Sephardic uh, Jews, and what he does say is mostly an error. In his book, quote, God's Covenant People, Yesterday, Day, and Forever, unquote, Wyland quotes page 68, a Jewish source, James Gaffey, I don't know if it's Gaff or Gaffey, from his book, The American Jews, which uh, says this, quote, the early Sephardic settlers, for example, left practically no descendants who are still Jewish. They disappeared not because they intermarried, but because they refused to intermarry, and so without sufficient choice among their own, they uh, remained unmarried and died out uh, choosing extinction rather than uh, a simulation. Uh, there's a, uh, an example of how a Jewish life to you. <clears throat> now I will back up to a note by Wyland. Quote, note that he, Daffy, considers the Sephardic Jews Jew extinct, unquote. At this point, one must understand Wyland's motive for quoting uh, uh, this Jew. Wyland is attempting to prove that the Jews today are only Jews by religion. By doing so, by doing this, Christ to avoid any connection whatsoever with the genetic satanic seed line. But in so doing, he backs himself into a corner. Wyland also tries to trace the Jews' lineage back to Esau in order to discredit the idea that they are descendants of Cain. By Wyland's endeavor to prove that the Sephardic Jews extinct, he is also implying that Esau Edom, the Esau Edomite Jews are extinct. Well, well, before you start, before you start another idea, yeah, you know this this the the first Jews in America. It, it talks about it basically tries to convince us that poor Morano Jews came into to New Amsterdam and Peter Stuyvesant didn't like them and and whatever. It, it, it in truth that there was a very that there were some very wealthy Jewish settlements in New Amsterdam. The, the date well, well back before the time of the British, before the time of the British and the, and the renaming of New Amsterdam to New York, 
I think I established with citations in my article, Philadelphia, back last year, that there were Jewish slave traders in, in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, and diverse other places. Jewish slave traders were already making the, you know, their own settlements, that their, their own little neighborhoods in the diverse colonies in the 1600s, and, and they weren't poor by any means. So, so this, the first Jews in America, he's basically only telling a small part of the story. Yeah, that, that's basically uh, what Henry Ford tells in uh, in his uh, book, you know, The uh, International Jew. And so evidently Ford may have been quoting the same thing, uh, you know, from that Jewish history. And... Uh, well, I'm glad you point that out. Uh, uh, I, I think the date there that they had that, uh, I, I forget the date there, they had the Jews uh, coming into New York. Uh, well, I, I remember you wrote that in a paper. You had written uh, in, in, in one of your papers quoting from, from an older Jewish source uh, about the settlement that the ship the St. Charles, was it? I forget the name of the ship. The same, yeah, I, I wrote about that uh, somewhere along the line. And, and that's just one example. And those families were actually wealthy Sephardic Jewish families from Spain that, that, that had come and settled in, in New York City. Well, there had to be some pretty wealthy Jews there in New, uh, in New Amsterdam because it was Jews that forced uh, Stuyvesant to take them. Well, well, Jews forced in to take them. Jews had financed New Amsterdam. Jews had financed Cromwell. It, it's um, the, the Jews were behind the uh, Jewish financing was what was behind the English expansion and, and the Dutch expansion as well. The, the Dutch colonization as well. Well, this shows that Jews were using the financial leverage you know, uh, that pry bar they got, uh, wherever they can use it. I guess if you had a, a lever uh, with a fulcrum or be just drag, it could move the whole, whole world. Yeah. Uh, but uh, maybe that's what the Jews are trying to do. But they take it their leverage, Jim. Uh, let's see here. Uh, by Wyland's endeavor to prove the Safari extinct, he is also implying that Esau Edomite Jews are extinct. If the subverted Esau Edomite Jews are extinct, why does uh, Ted Wyland even make an issue out of it? Uh, I will now present evidence that the subverted Jews still exist. And, and this, is, this is what you're talking about, Bill. The following is a review of what I have written uh, before concerning this. The Sephardim are still around. In the book, Our Crowd, the Great Jewish Families of New York, pages uh, 29 and 30, and I will have to paraphrase the story. Sometime in the 1960s, a ship, uh, quote, bark, unquote, a three-masted sailing ship, St. Charles, dubbed the Jewish Mayflower, uh, brought 23 subverted Jews. Rabbi Lee uh, J. Levenger says 24 uh, from the culture of the medieval Spain 
and some of the great deferred families of New York descended from the St. Charles uh, arrivals, which include, included the Hendrixes, uh, the Cardozas, uh, Baruchs, Lazarus, uh, Nathans, Solaces, Gomezes, Lopezes, Lindows, Lombosas, and then I got one here, you know, I just don't know how to, S-E-I-X-A-S-E-S, uh, Saxes, and that might be uh, the base of the name from Saks Fifth Avenue, I'm not sure, but uh, I'm not familiar. It's evidently a Jewish name, all right, but, but I just can't pronounce it. Well, I should have read ahead because I didn't even remember that you quoted that paper in 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 this one. I I I forgot all about that. But yes, this is um yeah, this is something you wrote ten years ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it was pretty early because uh, I got those ten audio tapes that the guy gave me uh, that uh, uh, Wyland put out. Uh, did she or didn't she, you know? And the more I more listen to those, the matter I got. And um, So uh, it was in his did, did she or didn't she that Ted Whelan tried to claim that Sephardic Jews no longer existed? Um, Contrary to all common knowledge, right? Because, because it was in his book. Uh, a guy loaned me his book, um, Israel Today, uh, uh, today, uh, today, Tomorrow, and Forever something like that. Uh, that's where he uh, made this, uh, that's where I got the comment about uh, um, uh, him saying that there weren't any Sephardic Jews around. And he, he, had, he had quoted some Jew and didn't uh, check other Jewish sources. To, uh, in, in other words, Wyland didn't go to our crowd and see what it said. And so I just tossed it back, back right in his lap and and show that there were subverted Jews, and, and you know, here it names them. So, uh, uh, you got some other comment there, Bill? No, no well, well, yeah, maybe I, maybe I do. It's, yeah, you know, it's very demonstrable in history that there were plenty of, that there are plenty of Sephardic Jews around today, right, to this day. It's, yeah, right, right. I, I don't know how Ted Weiland tries to somehow disprove 2C line because there are no Sephardic Jews. That that's kind of silly. It doesn't even add up. I, I don't know. It's it's. But that's Ted Wyland. He has a pretty contorted mind. Well, he just picks things out of the clear blue sky and and, and uh, runs with it. But uh, but I think I'll be bringing it up here where uh, the uh, Sephardic Jew uh, where where this our crowd book actually tells uh, that the. Um, the Sephardic and the uh, uh, Sephardim, uh, the Sephardim and the Ashkenazi did start to you know intermarry. Well, well, yes, they have intermarried, especially these last two hundred years. But, but, but for a long time in Europe, the Sephardic and the Ashkenazi Jews were polarized and and well, well, separated from each other also. But the the Sephardic Jews are basically the Jews that ran the slave trade. That they ran the slave trade. The, the the Inquisition helped them spread themselves throughout the New World. They were on the ships of all the conquistadors. That they were settled in in, in the American colonies at, at an early time, 
and they ran the slave trade and and um and, and branched out into many other endeavors along the way. And we can thank them for all the niggers we got in the country, right? Well, well, basically, um, yeah, yeah, to a great extent, we can. Um, well, anyway, check these names, and you can know without any reservation that the first Jews are still around. I got to adjust my screen here a little bit. Um, on page 31, it tells how the German Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews of New York began to intermarry. It was the Sephardic that were the old Canaanite Jews uh, that uh, came from Palestine. They had the blood of Cain, Esau, and the race of Raphian, fallen angels. If the Sephardic Jews are extinct, as Ted R. Wyland implies, there is no longer any Esau Edom. Why then? Uh, why then? Even make an issue out of Esau Edom if this is the case. Wyland was arguing against himself. He couldn't figure out if he was he was defeating his own argument. Well, to an extent, that that's um, that that can be said. Yes, indeed. This is just one example of the many spurious statements people like Wyland. And Jones, and now this is uh, Stephen E. Jones in this case, Brueggemann and Wiseman make uh, in their presentations to mislead and confuse the issue. And the citation from uh, WTL uh, number 39. Now we go into this, what I was telling you before. Uh, uh, the, the Jews are unable to overcome the course of uh, the Curse of King, and I, I have the uh, subtitle, Unable to Overcome the Curse of King. At Genesis 4.12, it is recorded, quote, When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. So, so much for the back to the land movement of the Jews, right? Yeah, that's what we're going to get into now. Back to the land. When did they leave the land? They left the land with Cain, right? <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. And that was a long, uh, what do they call it? The, time the long hiatus, I would call it. Hiatus, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, well. Now, returning to a century of Jewish life by Ismar uh, L. Bolden, uh, pages uh, 133, no, 333 and 332. Uh, to do that, you know, uh, pages uh, 333-235. Uh, quote, Michael Halpern was an enthusiastic uh, partisan of the Back to the Land movement and was happy to find that many immigrants expressed a strong desire to devote themselves to agriculture pursuits. He made it his business to raise funds for the purpose. Settlements were attempted in several states, but unfortunately all of them miscarried. One time it was the water that was at fault. Another time it was a crop failure. Once drought, again frost and hail, uh, spoiled the flourishing crops that were almost ready to harvest. Uh, 
always it was a, a complete lack of experience and consequently ill-chosen ground, uh, which was the blame for the failure. Of course, I think it's something, you know, I think it's the curse of Cain. The settlers worked with all their might and contented themselves with the barest minimum, but none of the settlement survived its difficulties uh, longer than four years. Individual farmers could set their uh, teeth and outface failure until their soil uh, rendered a return, and indeed some did, but for closed colonies, the requisite expenses and capital uh, were never available. So they evidently did have, uh, this guy evidently did get quite a bit of money, but didn't quite see him through. Uh, most of the enthusiasts were forced to return to the city disillusion. Poor old Kane, can't do anything right. <laughs> Few colonies in southern New York. Uh, you're, you're familiar with these counties, Bill. Uh, no, in southern New Jersey, uh, like Alliance, uh, Carmel, and uh, Rosenheim, uh, maintained themselves because their proximity with the cities provided them a favorable market, and because uh, Baron the first one stood behind them. Quote, Hamilton's influence in the creation of this fund was considerable. In Constantinople, uh, Morris de Hirsch was in contact with Austria Strauss, 1840 and night to 1996. Uh, the United States ambassador to Turkey, Strauss informed de Hirsch of the miserable condition of the immigrants in America. This is kind of going back and rehashing the story. Uh, prepared Hirsch, uh, uh, the miserable conditions of the immigrants in America. Prepared as always, he gave productive help. The uh, Hirsch asked for a plan, and one was prepared by Michael Halifron and met the met the Hirsch's. Uh, approval, he made the, the income and later the principal sum, i got to move my screen here, uh, sum of 10 million francs uh, uh, or uh, $2,400,000 available and left the disposition of these monies to the judgment of the American committee. Upon uh, this committee, sat men most experienced in such affairs, uh, among others, Schiff, Strauss, uh, Judge Meyer, Schultzberger. Uh, in addition to temporary help, immediately upon uh, landing, such as providing shelter, uh, distributing immigrants in the interior of the country, and the purchase of tools, uh, for artisan measures and were taken uh, for providing payment 
And it just doesn't make sense. Specifically, the immigrants in the interior of the country and the purchase of tools and artisan measures were taken uh, for providing permanent help by making the immigrants self-sustaining. There was uh, much difference of opinion in matters of detail, but eventually unity uh, was achieved. In 1890, the fund began to operate, and the American administration was given more powers. Well, what, to me, that, that, what, what this is explaining is that the Jews, that they, they stick together, right? That they make sure they're, they're not going to be digging ditches. Not all Jews are bankers, right? Well, they needed more than just land, you know. I mean, they didn't have uh, the big tractors and combines. And, but, but, you know, the farmers back then, they had to have some pretty good plows and cultivators and uh, wagons. And, and I don't know whether they had hay rakes at that time, but uh, I would imagine it would take quite a bit to outfit a farmer. What did you think? Well, well, right. Uh, but they had the money for it. When, when the Jews, uh, you know, when they want to finance something, they get the money somehow. Well, well you know, they just uh, opened up the whorehouses and the gambling houses and, and uh, uh, the other things that they run uh, and uh, just keep them up, you know, keep them open uh, 24 hours a day and, and make more money. Well, anyway, that's that was unquote, uh, that was the uh, an unquote on that last uh, paragraph. Here it must be asked if Michael Halpin, Morris T. Hirsch, and Oscar S. Strauss were able to conjure up ten million francs, two million four hundred thousand dollars, for the failed back to the land movement uh, of the Edomite Jews. How much might they have contributed? contributed to the Fund of the Statue of Liberty, or as they call it at that time, Liberty Enlightening the World. <clears throat> and the Jews uh, tried the same so-called back-to-the-land movement uh, in, quote, uh, quote back-to-the-land movement, unquote, in Canada, which also failed. Well, Pulitzer and, and, uh, and other Jews were definitely behind the, um, the, the creation of the Statue of Liberty, but, but it's, um, it's also clear that they found ways to get a lot of the, the goyim to, to help foot the bill for it. Oh, and, I'm sure that they did. And that's their modus operandi. Well, they get, the, they get the money off of banking and... Uh... And a lot of illegitimate uh, processes. Well, well, right. The mainstream accounts were that they actually got a lot of contributions from average people to help build the statue. I'm not sure how true that is. I haven't studied the issue from original sources, but that's the mainstream account, and and it's it's very much like them to um to find ways to get the non-Jews to foot the bill for for their endeavors. They they've been doing that to us for thousands of years now. But after after the land back to the land failed in in the United States, they tried the same thing in Canada. And uh, I'll start in here. I did 
IBID uh, page uh, 323, uh, it's that, that same book, uh, uh, A Century of Jewish Life. Um, quote, Canada, Canada, too, had a considerable share of immigration. The proximity of the United States, the extent of fertility of the country, and the uh, sparsity of its population were inducements to immigration, but prevalent, but prevented a firm and independent development. Uh, the reception of the first refugees were, was very cordial. Uh, the charitable work was on a voluntary basis, and the personal interest and warmth with which they were met encouraged the immigrants and made it easy for them to settle down so that they could soon help others to settle. <clears throat> when the uh, immigrants, my voice is kind of, you want to read there, Bill? When immigration became particularly heavy in 1888, and Jews were just pouring into the U.S. and Canada in the late 19th century. The Young Men's Hebrew Benevolent Society of Montreal, which had always felt responsible for the immigrants, approached Baron de Hirsch and solicited the same interest on behalf of immigrants to Canada as he showed in those to the United States. The petition was promptly heeded. Permanent assistance was promised and given. In 1891, the Baron de Hirsch Institute was opened. This provided shelter for newcomers, newcomers meaning Jews, and also secular education with evening classes for adults. The Institute became more important as immigration grew after the turn of the century. Not content with this work, Baron de Hirsch and later the Jewish Colonization Association, which established a separate Canadian committee promoted the settlement of Jews as farmers. That, that's basically a joke, right? But, but they're serious. That they're, they're dead serious. The government favored these efforts by putting land at their disposal gratis. As in almost all... So Jews moving to Canada in 1888 got free land from the Canadian government. As in almost all other countries, these settlements began with a very difficult period of trial. Their success was retarded by unfavorable location and failure of crops. Well, well Canada's no, no, um, no, no cakewalk, right? According to a census of 1920, there were 3,500 Jewish persons in Canada living by agriculture, and the annual value of their products was a million dollars. That would be $285.71 per year per Jewish farmer. Hardly a living wage even back then. That would amount to about $23.80 per month to meet the needs of one Jewish family. They're not going to be successful farmers, right? Ibid, page from the same source, page 324, these figures signify little in view of the greatly increased immigration which took place especially in the bad decade between the pogrom of Kishinev and the World War. 1905 to 1914. Whereas there were only something more than 16,000 Jews in Canada in 1901, in 1911, 
the number was 50,000, or 1%, 1.03% of the total population. And in 1921, it had grown to 126,196, or 1.44% of the population. This enormous, absolute increase was received into the other cities, of which some, like Winnipeg and Vancouver, were founded during this period and grew at an astounding rate. Yet, you know, New York might have the most Jews in North America, but it surely doesn't have any sort of monopoly on Jews. The Jews wandered from east to west along the railroad, and many settled at the stations fixed by the railroad. Their small stores became central points for the agricultural regions roundabout. There, farmers not only found their necessities, but frequently an interpreter for the various languages spoken in the country, someone to read and write their letters, and sympathetic under understanding for their human problems. Jew playing psychologist back then, I guess. At these railroad stops, villages came into existence and also Jewish congregations. They are to be found strewn over the whole broad dominion, but the main body of the Jews settled in a few large cities. Montreal, Toronto, and Winnipeg contain about three-fourths of the total Jewish population at that time. The character of the congregations was determined by the character of the immigrants, who brought a conservative attitude into an essentially conservative country. It is significant that, as late as 1921, 87% of the Jewish population recorded their mother tongue as Yiddish. Conservative Jewish would be some, somewhat different than conservative Christian, I would believe. Proximity to, to the United States determined the character of charitable institutions, hospitals, orphanages, and the like, all such establishments followed the pattern set in the United States. The relief organizations for the victims of the pogroms and for work in Palestine found ready support in Canada. Question, whose Statue of Liberty or whose Trojan horse? And Clifton ends his paper with the exclamation, an Edomite horse, of course. Well, yeah, Bill, thanks for um, taking over the reading there. I, my voice was kind of giving out. It, it was certainly Jewish ideals that, that inspired the French Revolution, the ideas of equality and fraternity and liberty um, embedded in the, the, um, the, the, French, the, the legacy of the French Revolution are basically um, Jewish ideas of equality, liberty, and fraternity. And they're contrary to all Christian civilization. They're contrary to the natural order of the creation of God. And and they they the Jews upon their emancipation needed to trumpet those ideals to to convince the the um, the goyim, for want of a better term, that that the the, the Jews should be an equal partner in society. And and of course that has led to the steady decline of Western civilization. Yeah, I think that the, the Jews uh, led back to the land movement. It turned out to be a curse for us because I, I think what the, the big thing that they ended up doing, they ended up controlling the uh, Chicago Board of Trade. And, and they, they controlled the prices, you know, uh, ever since then. And I don't know what, uh, what the situation... They have a different system in Canada uh, for the farming up there 
I ne- I've never understood just how it's different, but I've been told it, it, it's just probably another group of Jews that control uh, the Canadian border trade, wherever it is. Well, well, Clifton, we'll we'll um, schedule part two of of this presentation in about four weeks, and, and that'll be centered around the, the um, it, it'll it'll be an extension of this paper, and it'll be centered around the the, the Jewish sources of, of the push for diversity and multiculturalism and 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 miscegenation in America, right? Yeah, I put uh, three things together. Uh, I, I, I put uh, what um, Barbara Lerner Specter said in her YouTube and uh, I, I showboat. Uh, there's a, um, a website that uh, I um, copied the text from, and, and they really expose uh, how they're into miscegenation or race mixing. And, and they, you know they've been doing that uh, uh, almost forever, and uh, and then I picked up uh, some of what I wrote in um, um, "They're Your Children." Do you really care? And uh, and it's more or less. I just I just decided to call this brochure "What's Behind the Edomite Jewish Agenda." The main thing that's behind our agenda is miscegenation. Well, well, right. Miscegenation is well. Well, that's their ultimate goal is to miscegenate all the races, right? That that's the the, the destruction of the creation of God. That that's the original rebellion of the fallen angels, who, who the Jews are descended from. They're doing their works of their father, the devil. That that's exactly what they're doing. Okay, we'll discuss that in about three or four weeks here on on Christogenia on Talk Show. And and, uh, thank you for being here tonight. And and I'll see you soon. Next week I'll be in Bristol, Virginia. And and, um, I will be presenting Luke chapter 19 here. Tomorrow night I'll be here with Sword Brethren. And we'll continue our series, part four of our series, on Congressman Lewis McFadden. Thank you for listening and praise Yahweh.